0: Father, we worship you. As a church, we cry out, it is well with our soul. Jesus has paid it all. Jesus alone has paid it all. Father, I pray that in the next few moments as we look into your word, that you would show us great favor That through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would not just give information to our minds, but that you would change our lives with the truth of the gospel. That we might leave resting in you and you alone. That we might leave growing in you and you alone. And we might set aside the things that would distract us. Lord, we love you. And we pray in the name of your son, in the name of Jesus, Amen. Um, I want to begin this morning by acknowledging a little something about our culture here in East Tennessee, in the South, and the mountain culture that we live in. Uh, we're not really high on confrontation in the South. It's why we are known to have Southern hospitality. And it can be a very kind of humorous thing. It can be funny. Uh, I remember when I first moved back here i 'm originally from here, but I spent a good fifteen years away in up north in bigger cities. and I remember coming back here, and I, honestly, I struggled a little bit with it. Um, I, I realized I was much more direct in my conversation than others, and it was just kind of hard. And I remember I was talking to someone in the church, and we were trying to find someone who uh, would fit a a, a certain area of service and wanted to make sure that was a good chemistry fit for them and a place they would do well. And I asked somebody, because, you know, when you're new, you don't know everybody that well. I said, hey, what do you think about John in this role? And they said to me, well, what do you think? And I wasn't, you know, really that far ahead, and I'm a little slow. And so I began to answer the question, that's a mistake Shouldn't do that. But I did. I began to answer the question, well, I think it's a really good idea. And, and I went in the reason why. And the whole time I'm talking, tell them why it's a good idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're nodding. They're agreeing. They're telling me what a great idea it is. But the whole time they're doing all this, I'm looking in their eyes, and in their eyes they're saying, this is a horrible idea. But nothing in their body language or in their speech is saying any of that. So finally, I, I had to use my uh, we call it a southern language, that southern discernment to realize you're saying this, but that's not what you mean. And so I, I said, wait, let me ask again. So I went through and I said, so you're saying you think John Smith, this is a good fit for him. And they go, oh, that's the John you're talking about. I thought, oh, yeah, John, that's a horrible idea. That guy's going to be so much better. I'm so glad you're going to do that. That'll be a really good fit. And I'm like, wait a minute. Two seconds ago, it was a great idea, you agreed. Now you're telling me it was a horrible idea. We live in that kind of a culture. And sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's a great weakness to us, even to the point of sin. I want you to know if you're going to live like Jesus, you're going to have to come out of some of that culturally, and you're going to have to be a little more confrontational. Because Jesus was confrontational. He was highly confrontational. Not in an unloving way, but in an edifying way. And when Paul is writing here to the Colossians, this whole epistle is really kind of capsulated in the fact that they are being confronted falsely, accused of something they are not. And Paul is writing to them, telling them, you must stand up. Stand up. Confront the false accusation that is against you. And so, there's a charge here for confrontation. See, Paul is writing to them because they have been accused of not really being in Christ. At least not the way they should be. And Paul is saying, no, but you are, and you must stand up for the true gospel. And so, I'm not going to build to some hidden crescendo this morning. Uh, I'm going to let you know kind of where we're going from the the very beginning, but give you an illustration so that you can begin to to see it as we walk through it. It's a simple illustration. Uh, It's kind of light. It's fun. So, I want to show you a picture, and I want to ask you if you know what this is. Now, don't say a tree. I know nothing about plants. Uh, If I touch it, it dies, Uh, but even I know that that's a tree, Do you know what kind of tree it is? And how many of you are confident that you would bet, like, man, I would bet, like, you know, my kid's college fund, I know what that tree is. See, not many of us, right? Okay, let's look at the next tree. How many of you know what kind of tree that is? Let's see, how many of you know what kind of tree that is? Oh, now I'm starting to see hands. See, that's an apple tree, right? You want to know a secret? What do you think the first tree was? Apple tree. The same tree. It's the same tree. Now, listen. The first tree is an immature tree. It hasn't grown, it's not producing fruit. It's an immature apple tree. The second tree is a mature apple tree. Got lots of awesome fruit on it. We love the fruit. It's there. Great apple tree. Does the fact that the first tree is immature and not grown yet? Make it any less of an apple tree? No. See, listen, what it is, what it is, isn't defined by its maturity, its practice, or even its fruit yet. We may know it and recognize it by its fruit. Watch, there's a distinction. But what it is does not change. It is an apple tree. This will be Paul's point. You are in Christ because of your faith in Jesus, because of His work, not because of your works. You are in Him. And there are people who are coming to the Colossians and they're saying, but you're not really in Him because you haven't done this and you're not doing this and you're not doing that. And that is the setting for Colossians chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 16, and it says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one pass judgment on you. So here's that first charge for confrontation. You're going to have to stand up for yourself. Don't let somebody say something about you that's not true. Now listen, judgment, we, we always like to say, don't judge. The truth is, there's a lot of judgment in Scripture that we are called to. We're called to admonish our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're called to correct. We're even told by Christ that we will know those who are in him by the fruit they produce. There's judgment involved in that. So we know from the counsel of the whole scripture that some judgment is good and some judgment we're called to. So what we're going to see next is a qualifier. Because not all judgment should we reject. Some judgment we need to heed. But this judgment, Paul says, to stand up, to confront, and here comes the qualifier, in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of things to come. But the substance, what is real, belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you. That term disqualify, think of that like an umpire. That's what it means. It's it's an umpire. It's one who would call you out. Who would say, nope, you don't belong. They would call you out. So again, let no one disqualify you. There's a confrontation. You're going to have to stand up. Don't let it happen. And so here comes the qualifier. Insisting on asceticism. Now asceticism is a false humility. It's a false humility. It's actually just the word humility there, but we know in context it's a false humility. We'll come back to that later. And worship of angels. In other words, here's the point. You're too low to access God yourself. You need a mediator to get to Christ. You can't just worship Jesus. You need need some angels. You need to come talk to Come talk to your pastor and he'll help mediate between the two of you. So he says, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head. In other words, abandoning substance for speculation. From whom, the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. In Christ we grow. In Christ we mature. Verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why? Why? As if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value, not even a little, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And so Paul is writing, and this whole section here uh, in Colossians chapter 2, even going back to what Mike has preached last week, is really a warning against falsely defining our spirituality through a few things. Last week there were two of them, the first one that Mike talked about was intellectualism. Verses 8 through 10, it's Christ plus man's thinking. Let, let me, I, can, I can speak to this just easily with some boldness. No child left behind. Remember no child left behind? You got no child left behind? Man, I, I, I owe my entire education to no child left behind. Here's what I've realized. If you just don't quit and you're willing to pay some money, they'll just keep sending you through more school. And then you get to the end and they give you this sheet of paper and they call you a doctor. And all you did was just kind of keep going. Listen, from one who has one, listen, here's my point. Those people who think that sheet of paper does anything to advance their spirituality, in and of that sheet of paper, they are delusional. They're delusional. Just as delusional as those people who would use the word theology like it's a bad word, apologizing for it. Acting like that's all just for some smart people. Because here's the point. There is no correlation between this kind of academic, smart, and a pursuit of knowing God. They're not the same thing. And some of the people that I am most proud of in our church are the most least educated people who can barely read Who open up their Bible every morning and spend hours praying, fighting through the words. That they may know God more. Not because they're pursuing some academic understanding. Not because they're pursuing some philosophies of man. Not because they just want to come across intelligent. But because they want to know God. A sheet of paper doesn't make you more spiritual. And a title doesn't make you more spiritual. And an education in and of itself doesn't make you more spiritual. And neither are those things an excuse to keep us from pursuing God's Word, His revelation of who He is and who He's called us to be. Because our spirituality isn't defined in those things. Next we see Paul move on and he begins to talk about circumcision. Circumcision in the Old Testament is given as a sign, a covenant between God's people and God. It was a sign that these people are my people. And by the time we get to the New Testament, God's people begin to really struggle with this idea. Because now, to be God's people means to be in Christ. But man, this was such a significant symbol of belonging. Listen, church, if we don't understand circumcision as it comes into the New Testament, we will greatly struggle to understand the tensions and the context of the New Testament. It is central to books like Romans. It is central to the center part of Acts. It is central here when we're looking in Colossians. It is central to Galatians. These are important issues that the early church is wrestling with. And although it's not an issue that we hold up and we have the same value toward today, when we begin to see it in its context, we begin to see the tension in the early church, it shines a great light for us on our own issues, our own traditions that we hold up. So by the time we get to verse 16, where we're at today, Paul says, Therefore, if you're in Christ, right? in Christ because remember the Colossians have been unsettled in their faith these people are confronting them and here's what these people are doing the same thing there are people in our life all the time ready to do you're not quite there yet that's good that's good but you're not quite there yet how many of you guys you have one of those friends no matter what you say they got that story that's just a little bit better you know they oh yeah that happened to you oh let me let me tell you what it's really like how many guys have a friend like that I'm just going to be honest. If we're friends, I'm that friend. That's me. I'm an only child. I can't help it. I'm sorry. Be patient with me. But I'm that friend. I, I, just, I just do it naturally. I'm owning it. I know that it's me. All right? I know that it's me. Some of you raised your hand thinking about me. That's nice. But I I know. Here they are saying, oh, yeah? You think you're in Christ? You're not quite there yet. I know you got Jesus, but you need some of this other stuff too. Isn't it funny how those people who want to tell you you're not quite there yet, they always know what you need to get there. And they've always got it. Isn't that an amazing thing? And so this is what's happening. By the way, one other side note before we really jump in. It's worth noting that the people themselves, they don't recognize it. They've accepted it. If it were so easy, Epaphras, who goes after Paul and gets Paul to write back, he just fixes it. He doesn't have to chase Paul down. It's an issue for the church. They're struggling with it. They've accepted it. And I would remind us that it's an issue for us. And so the first one I want to see is legalism. Legalism. So some general observations about legalism. It is plus our rules Christ plus our rules and we always see listen, we always see legalism through a cultural lens most of the time in things like days and diet and dress and when we see those things in a cultural lens, what it means is that legalistic practices outside of our culture, outside of our culture they seem extreme they, that's legalism Meanwhile, the legalistic practices within our culture, they seem reasonable, even spiritual. Let me give you an example. I was in Nepal, and I was at a church service, and I'm I'm preaching at this service. I was there teaching for a little bit, and we had a break through the weekend, and this guy asked me to go to his church and preach, and we're there, and we're in this room, and it's uh, maybe two or three stories up, and the floor is just concrete. We go to the church, and outside the door is this mountain of shoes. I was not prepared for this. I had little thin socks. Uh, The Himalayas are in Nepal. It's cold, okay? They all get to sit there in the pews with their feet up in the air and cuddle, or I don't know. But I have to stand there on that floor for the next 40 minutes and preach, and my feet are cold. I'm sitting there in no shoes. Anyway, we walk back out and a gentleman, he's in the class with me, he's there, and he comes up, and it seems like a random question. He goes, is it true that everyone in America, when they go to church, they wear a suit? And I said, well, no, no. I said, some do, some don't, It's whatever they, they do. He goes, well, I've heard that a lot do. I said, well, a lot do. He says, why is that? And I said, well, I said, some just like to dress up. I said, there are some that think that you honor God by wearing the best that you have, and they define that as a suit. Now, this guy says, that is crazy. I said, I said, why do you think so? He goes, well, what, do they just wear the same suit every week? Because there's one suit that's probably better than all the other suits. And how do they determine with, like, what's best? Is it what's most expensive? Like, how do they even know what's best? And don't they know in Revelations that when we're in heaven, we wear robes? I, don't, I just don't understand. I said to him, with my feet, with frostbite setting in, well, why do you take off your shoes when you go to church? Oh, because that honors the Lord. I said, really? He goes, yeah. I said, wait a minute. You know if I went back to my church and I said, listen, None of us can wear shoes in the sanctuary anymore. I just removed 80% of our people. They're gone. They're not coming in barefoot. So, only place people need to see wear shoes is at church. <laughs> and so, here's the tension. Watch. He couldn't understand a legalistic practice. And I'm not saying it's legalistic if you're wearing a suit or you're wearing shorts, that's not my point. I'm saying that false motive of thinking that somehow you're adding to your spirituality by something that you wear, something that you do, adding to your belonging. That, that kind of a thought, he couldn't understand it outside of his culture. Meanwhile, when we look at theirs, we go, oh, that's legalism. And so what I want you to see is in this legalistic cultural lens that we see things, It is a temptation of ours to always see legalism as something we have moved past. It's what I used to be. It's what we used to be. And not to see the real tensions of adding those kinds of works, those kinds of rules today. Here's what I want you to know. We, me, you, we still struggle with legalism. Because the pride that is in us wants to add something. And we do not want to rest in Jesus alone. Second, legalistic practices are good practices with bad motives. Or good motives with bad practices. It can work either way. Both are meaningless human efforts to be spiritual. It is only edifying when we bring obedience to the revelation of God with the pursuit and love of Jesus. The two must go hand in hand. And any time our motive begins to measure one standing in Christ, we have slipped into legalism, where you would say, oh, I'm a Christian. I come to church on Wednesdays. I'm a Christian. I'm in a life group. Or you begin to see that person out in society and, I don't know, you see them in whatever setting that's in, and you begin to put some kind of branding on their efforts or their works, you know... 25, 30 years ago, you might have seen someone and seen them outside and maybe they're drinking or smoking and you say, well, they're not a Christian. What are you measuring their faith on? Think about that. These practices that are here, Paul's beginning to acknowledge that legalism, Christ plus man's rules have no effect, listen, on our belonging in Christ. Verse 16, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you, there's that confrontation again, in question of food and drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. In the first century, church circumcision, dietary laws, Uh, The days, the Sabbath, the festival days, these were huge things. Probably the only thing that really of those that kind of linger with us today might be some of the Sabbath practices. I remember as a kid, if you mowed your yard on a Sunday, I don't know what would happen, but you were going to die. A lion would come out of the woods, eat you, you would get struck by lightning, but it was a bad thing. You just didn't do that, right? You don't do those things. We continue to judge one another's standing in Christ by external rules. Understand, Paul's not writing. He's not talking about necessarily a pursuit. He's not necessarily talking here about a pursuit. He is talking about their standing in Christ. And it's not based on their works. Here's his point. Anyone who puts on us a legalistic set of rules as the key to full spirituality is proclaiming a lie reject their judgment reject their judgment listen good works doesn't deliver salvation but salvation always delivers good works It is a promise of Scripture that those who are in Christ will produce fruit. If we are alive long enough, we will grow and mature and persevere in Him. If we are indeed in Him. That's a promise. And we can even see those good works. We can see those fruits in people. But we can never measure their standing in Christ. We can never measure their standing in Christ by simply those things. Let me give you an example. He says in verse 17, these are a shadow of things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. These legalistic practices, they're just a shadow. I have a projector downstairs in my basement. And let's assume that my wife is gone for Two weeks on some trip or something. If she's gone for more than 30 minutes, my whole house and world falls apart. But she's gone for two weeks. I mean, it's, it's, it's a disaster there. I mean, I am missing her terribly. And so I decided to go downstairs and turn on the projector and watch some home movies. And so I'm watching some movies, and there she is, and I'm seeing the projector shoot an image up on a screen. And it's comforting just to see that image. And as I'm watching that home movie, down the steps walks my wife, and she walks into the room, and I say, "Hey, wait, wait! I miss you. I'm watching you." Boy, that's an absurd thought, isn't it? That's what Paul's saying. We do through legalism. See, there were practices that pointed us to Jesus. Their their point was to. Show us Him. And instead of running to Him and worshiping Him, when we chase those practices, watch this, when we make them our focus, it's like worshiping the image, the shadow, and not the thing of substance, the thing that is real. It is holding up a shadow instead of substance. Listen, we do not celebrate a Passover lamb because we have the lamb that is Jesus. We don't chase after bread because we have the bread of life in Jesus, right? We don't walk in with lights and go through sa- sails because when you have the light of the world in Jesus, legalism makes those things primary and abandons substance. The next thing we see is asceticism. It's a false humility it is Christ plus man's self-denial. If you have the King James Version, you're going to see the word humility. It's there. It's the exact same word here used in 1 Peter 5, three. Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, listen, with humility toward one another. Here Paul is saying, clothe yourself with humility, same word. Now he's saying, let no one disqualify you, insisting on this Humility. Well, what's the tension? What's happening here? For them, this humility is to sever the wants of anything uh, that might show devotion to the Lord. It is a false humility. Let me give you a few key aspects. First, it is being too humble to approach Christ or God. In other words, you feel like you need a mediator. It's when you really have that prayer need. And, man, you really need that to work out. So you call Pastor Mike because you want Mike to pray for you. Because you think that Mike, you know, Mike's got God on speed dial. You still have to look him up. You know, he's closer. His prayers are somehow going to matter more. He has a more direct access. See, listen, there are whole religions based on that, right? You can't access God. Come pray to me, and I'll talk to him for you. See, that's absurd. That's absurd. It's absurd. If you are in Christ, you have access to God. You don't have to go through pastors or angels or anything else. You have direct access through Jesus. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access. By faith into this grace in which we stand, access to the creator and sustainer of the entire world, access to God in Christ and in Christ alone. And their point is oh, but you don't see, man is so depraved, you have no merit to come before God. And what they have right is true. We have no merit to come before God. That's true. What they have wrong is it is not determined based on our merit. It is determined based on our faith in Christ alone. It's through Him that we have access. Nothing of ourselves. The second thing we see is that too humble to pursue Christ. This is the person who's saying, you know, I can't do anything. So I'm not smart enough to study the Bible, so I don't. I'm not convincing enough To share the gospel. So I do not. I can't do anything. And the theme is the I can't. The theme is I. As if their power comes from them anyway. And see the error in this is. Is they just apply discipline and pursuit. To something that's secondary. They say you know I can't read really well. And I can't really study God's word. And I'm not really going to. I don't feel like I get as much out of that. So I just you know. That's just not my thing. And so then over here, they know every player on the Tennessee football roster, where they went to high school, how fast they run the 40, right? They've applied discipline and pursuit to just something that's secondary. And they're not always so meaningless things. Lots of times they're good things. They're serving in some program in the church. They're helping something, they're, they're saving whales, they're doing something with their time. The error is that your pursuit can never get close to God, so why ever bother? As if it were dependent on you. I cannot be perfect, so why try at all? Third, too humble To live in the joy of Christ. These are those who say, I am so broken. You don't understand the things that I've done. You don't understand the people that I've wronged, the people that I've hurt. I don't deserve the joy that is in Christ. Again, you are right. You do not deserve the joy that is found in Jesus. But again, the wrong thinking is that it comes down to what you deserve. Christ came to give life and give it more abundantly. It is what He wants to give you in Him. And so there are those who would want to stiff arm the very joy of Christ because they think they do not deserve it. The third thing we see mentioned is mysticism. Christ plus man's experiences. He goes on he says, And worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by His sensuous mind. All throughout our churches today, there are young believers, immature believers growing. And, man, they're just trying to figure it out. They're trying to pursue this Jesus who they are passionate about. And so, man, they're going to the study groups. And they're going in Bible studies. And they're getting up early for the first time ever to read a book for the first time, and they're praying through it, they're praying for the first time, they're trying to figure it all out, they're just longing to know God more, and it's driving them into disciplines in their life. Listen, not legalistic practices trying to validate or earn something, but just because they want to know their Savior more. And along comes somebody who says, oh, why are you doing all that? You just need to experience God. Just, just, just sit there, praise God. Show me who you are, and just wait. If you wait long enough, he'll he'll talk to you. And they said, "Well, how does that work?" And if they ask twenty different people, they're going to get twenty different answers because there's nothing consistent in that. It's com- it's speculation. There's nothing scriptural in that. Scripture doesn't describe it. What the Bible does say about the early church is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. By the way, that's our Bible. It's the revelation of God. It's how he makes himself known. And when we hold up these mysticism, this this kind of experiential thing where our experiences, listen, when our experiences are the chief things that define us in Christ, Paul says we are puffed up without reason. He is refuting speculation over revelation. He models this. So does Peter. Paul, if you remember, is called up to heaven. He talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's interesting. He didn't talk about this for years. I mean, he was called up to heaven. I'm just saying, that doesn't happen to me every day. I don't know. He's called up to heaven. He didn't talk about it for years. And then finally, when he mentions it, he's talking about it as if it's foolishness. And what he says is, whether I was in the body or out of the body, I don't even know. I bet he has a guess, by the way. But he doesn't know. Here's what he's saying. I can't even trust my own experience. I can't even trust to discern my own experience enough to tell you if I was physically in heaven or just somehow spiritually in heaven. I really don't know. He goes on in verse 6, and he says, For I would be speaking the truth if I told you all about it. But I refrain from it. Now, this is a big experience. I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Here's Paul's point I don't want you to be captivated by my experience, by my speculation. I want you to be captivated by something better. The truth of the revelation of who God is that is absolute that you can count on it. Peter says the same thing about the mountain of transfiguration where he saw Moses and Elijah in a mountain shake and heard the audible voice of the Father speak to the Son. And he said, in this we have a more certain revelation than even their experience. And so he's refuting in Inflation over inspiration. See, these people, they're claiming to be inspired, but they're really just inflated with hot air. That's what my mom used to say about me growing up. Just inflated with air, just filled up, puffed up. Claims to be wise, they do, but just full of wind. See, Christian mysticism is a roller coaster. It will never let you just be content in Christ. Because you're always living for the experiences, the spiritual highs. Instead of making the foundation of your faith truth. Paul says, listen, your experiences do not make you in Christ. Jesus and Jesus alone do that. And so some general observations about all these lies, and we're going to have to go quickly. First, all make the secondary primary. Verse 19, not holding fast to the head. All these abandon the substance of who Christ is for speculation, for rules, for a shadow. Number two, all are popular. They're all popular. It says in verse 22, according to human precepts and teaching. Listen, fighting against these things and your life standing up, For them standing up for the gospel against them listen this will not be a popular thing it wasn't common for them it was uncommon it drove epaphras all the way to paul and for paul to write a letter back not succumbing to these one of these if not all of these is a rare thing the point is assume you are at risk do not think you are past these things remember paul wrote to the entire church He didn't just name a few people who struggled with legalism. He wasn't just like, hey, Tom and Ed, I heard you got this. Get that together. Oh, by the way, the rest of y'all are good. He wrote to the entire church and warned them. Third thing, why is it so popular? Because all of these can be well-meaning. Verse 23 says there's an appearance of wisdom. An appearance of wisdom. Because they appear good. And so I think there are many believers who fall victim to these very things, and they're well-intended. They wouldn't describe them as false humility or legalism. They wouldn't describe it as mysticism. Here's what they would say. It's the way I worship the Lord. It's faithfulness. It's faithfulness. It's how I show God honor. Listen, wisdom is always obedient to God's word. Wisdom is always obedience to God's Word and anchored in what is primary. In other words, anchored in Jesus, not the secondary. Wisdom is always this. Let me give you an illustration. It's a story you'll find in the Old Testament. If you remember, the nation of Israel divided. Judah stayed, and the northern kingdom broke off, and so there were two countries, if you will, two nations of Israel, Israel and Judah. Except in Scripture all the people of Israel are commanded to worship in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So Jeroboam, the king of the northern, uh, uh, northern Israel, commanded the people to begin to worship in temples that are there. He built new temples in the north. He didn't want the people to leave and go to the south. He wanted them to be able to worship there. He didn't want them to feel like the south had it better than they did. So he built these temples uh, completely against what God had told him to do and They begin to worship in them. So God raises up a young prophet from Judah and sends this young prophet to go see Jeroboam and tell Jeroboam, this is wrong, you got to stop. So the young prophet goes. God tells the young prophet, you're going to go, you don't take any water, you don't take any food, and when you come back, immediately come back a different way than you went. Okay, so he goes. He finds Jeroboam worshiping in the temple. He says, hey, this is all against God. In a very dramatic way. And obviously the king probably doesn't care who this young guy is and what he has to say. So he begins to reach out and immediately God dries up his hand. I don't know what that looks like, but we'll say gross. Gross. Weird. Then the young prophet says the altar here is going to be destroyed. And the next thing you know, immediately right in front of him, the altar there is destroyed. So the king realizes this person is from God. He says, thank you for coming and delivering this word. Would you now come back to my house? I'd like to reward you. Now, the young prophet's been told by God, don't do that, right? So the young prophet responds back to the king, I can't. Even though it would be a great honor to go sit with the king. Even though it would be nice to be rewarded. He says no. And he begins his journey home a different way than he came. Except on the way, he finds an old prophet. Wise prophet, right? And this prophet says, hey, I heard what you did. Man, that's so cool. Come back to my house. I'll feed you. We'll hang out. Tell me about it. Young prophet says, listen, I can't. God told me, need to go straight back home. Go a different way. That's what I'm doing. Can't do it. Old prophet says, but wait, I'm a prophet too. And an angel of the Lord has spoke to me and told me to tell you, it's okay. Come to my house. Let's eat. Young prophet goes, really? All right. And he goes. While there, God speaks to the old prophet, tells the old prophet, tell the young prophet, he disobeyed my word. He's going to die. I don't know how that conversation comes up at dinner. That just seems awkward. And so they have the conversation. The young prophet leaves and is killed by a lion. So why are you telling me this story? Because I want you to understand something. God doesn't want our worship, like the McDonald's theme, our way. God wants our worship His way. And He has revealed His way through our word. And all these other things are getting outside of that. So your motive may be, well, I just love God and I want to worship Him this way. Every time you think that, think of that young prophet. God doesn't want your worship your way he wants it his way last two things all make it about works, self-made religion effort-based ways of gaining standing they're not about jesus they're not about maturing in him they're just about adding to our standing fifth all are empty all these are empty verse 23 they are of no value Apart from connection to Jesus, absolutely no value. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They are empty. I think this is why so many people in the church are just miserable. Have you ever seen those miserable people in the church? Man, they're just curmudgeons and just man you just feel bad for them there's no joy in their life and you think why because they're spending the week after week after week so close to the truth but instead trying effort and work to earn something they're never going to get that way i can't stand to work on something for five minutes if it doesn't produce something i can't imagine going through my whole life pursuing legalism as a way to add standing only to never get anywhere I think this is why sins like gossip are so prevalent in our church. What's the conclusion of all this? Listen, here it is. Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing. The Jesus followers' followers spirituality is defined in Christ alone. In Christ alone. So what does that mean for us today? What do we do with that? Three points of application fast. First, rest in Jesus alone. Rest, substance is in Him. Hold fast to the head. Put your hope, your standing in Him. Second, defend your faith in Jesus alone. Whether it is your culture or not, stand up for the truth of the gospel. Christ and Christ alone is the power unto salvation. It will be unpopular and it will cost you. By the way, I have, to, I have to take a moment just to make sure you understand the distinction. Go to Romans chapter 14. You need that for some context. Because here, Paul is talking about standing up and confronting the false teacher whose motive is to trip up people in their understanding of the gospel. In Romans 14, we have a similar conversation talking about Christian liberties, except there, Paul is talking about the weaker brother who is attempting to honor the Lord in his actions. And our response as believers needs to be different to those two audiences. I don't have time to chase that, but we need to acknowledge that as we walk through it. But you have A responsibility to stand up for the purity of the gospel. Finally, mature in Christ alone. Grow with a growth that is God's. Seek Him in obedience in His word. Not out of legalism. Not out of false humility or mysticism. But because you long to know Him. And know Him the way He has called you. And ordained for you to know Him. As the team comes up, I want to read to you verse 6 and 7 from chapter 2, a little bit before. Paul says, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith. It is all about Jesus. We do not sing Jesus paid some of it. We sing Jesus paid it all. He And He alone has accomplished it. He and He alone is going to be the source of your rest, your confidence, and your growth. Today you must decide, is your faith in Christ and in Christ alone? Or is your faith in Jesus plus something? And I will tell you, if it is Jesus plus anything else, you are missing the Gospel. And today, you need to do business with God. Would you bow your head for just a moment? We're going to say a... Spend a short time in prayer, and then I'm going to ask that you make this song a song of response. Father, if there's someone here who does not know you, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would make yourself known to them today. That you would compel them to saving faith. To faith not in a religious... Practice or structure not in their works not in their mind not in their emotions not in their experiences but a faith in you and you alone that would forever change their life and for those of us who are in Christ may we rest assured that we are in Christ not of ourselves but in you and may we worship you as such and may we count on you for our growth and you alone Lord do this work in us I pray in the name of your son, in the name of Jesus. Amen.